to the responsibility to protect. Words kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. Possibly crimes. Timely and appropriate actions. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streifeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. Today I'm joined by Muzna Ahaj, a Sudanese activist and a member of Khartoum Resistance Committees. Thank you for joining us today, Muzna. Uh, Thank you for having me. Muzna, you're a formidable Sudanese activist um, advocating for the inclusion of the voices of women and youth in Sudan. Um, I'm just wondering, how did you first become involved in political activism? Uh, I come from a political family. Uh, My father and both grandparents were parliamentarian. So I started off very early with all the readings and knowledge of Sudan history and current political issues. But it really started when my family moved back uh, to Sudan because I wasn't uh, initially born there. And then uh, I would say since 2004, we moved back and this was uh, coinciding with the CPA. Uh, and then, uh, which is the comprehensive uh, peace agreement uh, between uh, South Sudan and the Sudanese government. Uh, and then, of course, um, beginning from 2011, 2012, 2013, and until arriving at 2018, when the December Revolution happened, I was engaged in different political activism activities, uh, including, of course, uh, protests uh, and, and other type of activities. Uh, basically, I would say that the secession or independence of South Sudan uh, was a historical moment uh, for the Sudanese uh, uh, politics uh, because Sudan basically lost a big part uh, of its people and its land, and this actually immediately directed, uh, immediately influenced uh, the economic situation in Sudan. Uh, basically, it led to decisions like lifting the subsidies on very um, important commodities like fuel and bread. And these activities actually uh, led to ignition of uh, protest among the Sudanese people. Uh, This actually started in 2011, remarkably. Uh, But then, of course, I would say that the political activism history in Sudan is a very rich history, especially during the past 30 years, uh, beginning from 1989, when people first realized that the coup of Al-Inqaz regime is uh, something that's worth uh, fighting against and resisting. It's really uh, such a rich history, as you mentioned. And for so long, those um, civil society voices and political dissent and resistance efforts um, to the leadership of President Bashir were suppressed in Sudan. And now, since he was uh, removed from power, there is formidable pressure via resistance committees. Can you share how and why they were formed and, and maybe give a little info on how you personally got involved with them? 
Um, resistance committees definitely uh, dates back to earlier than late 2018 and 2019. Some historians actually talk about the fact that resistance committees were formed as early as 2013 because 2013 was such a remarkable uh, year in the history of Sudanese resistance because yet again Bashir government decided to lift subsidies on bread and fuel and it was met with uh, great resistance but uh, unfortunately it was also repressed uh, so fiercely and violently, uh, leading to the you know killing of almost three hundred people in the course of four to five days. Um, so back then the resistance committees were formed, but at that moment there were more of bodies that are related uh, to political entities, specifically political parties. But what happened in late two thousand and eighteen and early two thousand and nineteen? in the December Revolution is that the Sudanese Professionals Association, which was uh, back then actually the leading, I would say, entity for for the Sudanese uh, December Revolution, they called uh, on Sudanese people, especially Sudanese youth, uh, being uh, the largest percentage of population, but also participating in the protests that took place in December 2018. Moving forward, they called upon them to start forming these resistance committees within their neighborhoods because this was actually um, a form of organization where people could organize themselves within their neighborhoods uh, to take place in the revolution leading to the event uh, of uh, April uh, 6th sit-in that caused uh, the toppling of al-Bashir five days later uh, in April uh, 11th. Uh, 2019. Um, So the people by default responded to this call from the Sudanese professional associations and they started forming the resistance committees within their neighborhoods and what started with Khartoum and bigger cities in Sudan quickly escalated to hundreds of resistance committees in different towns and even small villages uh, all over Sudan. So it was indeed uh, a remarkable response to this call, but it was also fascinating to be part of this experience and see how Sudanese people actually uh, possess the power to organize themselves within their local communities to be able to prioritize uh, their needs and prioritize their actions of resistance. I want to pick up on something that that you said just now about how they called on youth to form resistance committees in their neighborhoods. You know, I think that that youth played a huge role in the protest movement and the resistance committees. And I remember from that period of time, there were these very moving photos being spread throughout the world of women standing up to power during protests. And I'm curious if after the government changed, were civilians and women and youth who had such a sort of prominent image uh, within the protests given enough space at negotiations during political talks? I would say, of course, this was not the case. youth in general and women particularly were on the forefront um, 
of the revolution in Sudan and also in the acts of organization and the acts of resistance. Uh, but then, of course, very quickly, the political elite managed to also organize itself in secretaries and in uh, wide alliances like the Freedom uh, and Change uh, Forces Alliance that decided to take up the political leadership and said to everyone, okay, thank you, we'll take it from here. Uh, And then this basically was the case. They were involved in the negotiation with a very minor women representation. I remember that um, during the negotiation between uh, the Civilians Alliance and the uh, Transitional Military Council, which is the military council that uh, basically succeeded uh, al-Bashir, there was only one woman in the negotiation team. And then, of course, also fast forward when the transitional government, civilian transitional government, was appointed in August 2019, I believe that the women representation within the cabinet was only 18%. So you could see very quickly that youth and women were sidelined. Um, I would say that when it comes to youth, of, when it comes to women, of course, all the different women group and feminist groups, they have uh, managed to push um, their agenda. They managed to actually resist this. They managed to secure some sort of representation, even if it's a flawed representation, even if it's uh, very little in its percentage. But when it comes to youth, it's even more complicated because for the resistance committees, for example, uh, many of them decided that this deal was not a fair deal and that the Sudanese people actually worked for a full uh, civilian rule, not for a rule to be shared with the Transitional Military Council. So by default, uh, they were not even pleased uh, with this uh, deal that led uh, to forming the the civilian government, and therefore they were not represented. They boycotted this, but they were not represented. Uh, And later, actually, they also had a very cautious relationship with the civilian transitional government, where they actually decided to lobby and advocate uh, for issues like uh, justice and transitional justice issues, uh, but without being like uh, completely or fully represented uh, within the different structures of the government. It's really powerful how, through persistence, these groups are still able to, as you said, get their their demands and their needs heard, um, even if the system is an imperfect one. Yes, indeed. It's a struggle and it remains to be one. Since you mentioned the the struggle within the transitional uh, council, and um, obviously, subsequently, there was a coup in 2021, and now renewed violence throughout Sudan. So I wanted to, to turn to that a little bit, um, since it's probably on the forefront of many people's minds. The outbreak of violence in April 2023 has dramatically changed the situation within Khartoum as well as wider areas of Sudan. Can you provide our listeners with an overview of recent events that brought Sudan into this deadly conflict? I think it was very obvious that uh, the partnership between the civilians and the military is not a long-lasting relationship. And basically, the coup was just an announcement of a divorce 
uh, of a very fragile uh, partnership. I would say, of course, uh, also this was the time when civilian and pro-democracy groups like resistance committees actually announced separation with the political, civilian political elite because uh, a coup was just too much to handle at that point because people have uh, worked very hard uh, during the revolution and they worked very hard to pave the way uh, for a sustainable and strong uh, civilian rule. Uh, And here we are faced with this coup. Uh, And I would say that the political elite, despite the fact that many of them were detained, but then, of course, in November uh, in 2021, Former Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok decided to uh, actually sign an agreement uh, with the coup leader uh, to basically sustain the civilian rule. And I think at this point, resistance committees were running out of patience and tolerance for any more partnerships. And they just decided that they are going to resist this coup with like the last uh, breath uh, in, in their lungs. And I think that what happened... Uh, So the resistance um, started from the first moment that the Sudanese people were aware that there was a coup. Um, Many of these young people and even older people, members of resistance committees, decided to take the streets and say no to the coup. Uh, This actually has resulted in the like the resistance of the coup resulted in the killing of, I would say, hundreds uh, of members of resistance committees, but also uh, Sudanese citizens uh, who are just resisting uh, this coup. And of course, we were resisting the coup until April 2023. I think this war just basically was just um, the cherry on top for everything that happened uh, since 2021 uh, until now arriving to a war. And I think actually for us, it's just a, a natural, I would say, uh, event to take place after this coup, because this war also, as much as it appears as uh, a power um, struggle uh, between the two generals, I think it's also a very timely opportunity for both warring parties um, to get rid uh, to get rid of actually any hope of uh, uh, having a civilian rule imposed on them, because let's be honest, both warring parties want the power for themselves, but they are also were running tired uh, of the continued uh, resistance of the Sudanese people. And what a better opportunity to chase away uh, democracy and civilian rule of by saying that the country is in secure situation and that the military needs to take over. And I think this is exactly what's happening now, because despite the fact that there is a war, a serious one, uh, both parties still find the time uh, to detain and to kidnap and to torture members of the resistance committees and other Sudanese activists. So this speaks volume uh, to their real intentions towards the Sudanese revolution and to the resistance of Sudan and how they are just very immune to any uh, democratic change uh, taking place uh, in Sudan. That's really fascinating that you, you're saying that to you from the inside, it felt like this was sort of an inevitable conclusion that this conflict would happen. Um, and yet from the outside, I feel like many observers, um, many people within the international community who were 
facilitating negotiations between the warring parties even, did not anticipate this. Do you, what do you think they were missing? Um, I would simply say it's just um, maybe the audacity, uh, how the international community uh, members uh, in Sudan uh, think that they have this power vested in them uh, to to change the course of events, even the events that could be seen very wide and clear. I think uh, after signing the so-called framework agreement um, in December and then all the events uh, leading uh, to the war in, uh, in April, the international community actors really thought that they could persuade uh, the 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 parties into into signing this political agreement and restoring uh, the so-called uh, transition to democracy in Sudan, but they could see clearly that at least one of the warring parties, uh, which I would say here uh, General Abdel Fattah Al Burhan, was very resistant uh, to any type of agreement. And even this agreement, the framework agreement, is not the type of agreement that would. Uh, would have been a successful agreement or satisfactory to the demands of the Sudanese people and to the demands of the resistance generally uh, and to the pro-democracy groups because it was basically just uh, a notion of reinstating the partnership, the failed partnership between the civilian elite and the military elite. And when one of the parties were clearly... uh, didn't uh, didn't actually wanted to go through with the framework agreement due to pressure because Abdel Fattah Al Burhan is just very associated with the National Congress Party and the Islamists, which is Al Bashir Party. So he was under pressure to not sign this uh, framework agreement. On the other side, of course, there was the political elite and the leader of the Rapid Support Forces who claimed that he was backing this uh, framework agreement and 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 fully behind it. And now in this, uh, actually using this very same claim, uh, he got into war against the Sudanese armed forces, claiming that he is bringing democracy to Sudanese people while his military or while his militia is uh, causing all these uh, atrocities, uh, killing the Sudanese people, detaining them, uh, torturing them, looting their houses and raping uh, raping Sudanese women and girls. Uh, so I would say that the nature of alliances between the Sudanese political elite and these military generals was never uh, a model that uh, anyone else would settle for, especially the resistance. Because we could see clearly from the beginning that our welfare and our demand as uh, a movement of resistance does not align with the demands and does not align with the priorities of the Sudanese political elite and therefore does not align with what the international community sees and wants for Sudan. We want different things. And they, sh- and they thought that they could actually you know, create democracy in Sudan through meetings behind closed doors and through... Uh, fragile political alliances and through fragile political agreements. But we saw clearly that unless we get rid of military rule in Sudan through resistance, that things will not work out. I hate to say that eventually it turned out that at least our vision 
was you know more white and correct and what it have so because eventually everyone anticipated that this uh, war will happen uh, because um, these generals were actually running out of uh, flexibility and running out of giving you know uh, promises to the international community that they will sort things out but at the same time these generals were not about to give up power and they really wanted to you know, create the circumstances to take power completely. Uh, but the international community was not giving up at, at the same time also the Sudanese political elite. But I guess especially for the Sudanese political elite, it was just very naive to believe that after who that these generals will again share power with them. Indeed. Um, you've touched a little on, on the abuses that the warring parties have committed against members of resistance committees as well as the wider population. I wonder wonder if you want to elaborate a little on what atrocity risks civilians are currently facing in Sudan. I would say, of course, if we take both parties, whether Sudanese armed forces or rapid support forces, they are both committing uh, crimes against humanity, against the wider population of the Sudanese people. If we started with the rapid support forces actually uh, being, I would say, the most uh, violent uh, party in this uh, in this war, uh, of course, it started. You can go through all types of crimes from killing the Sudanese citizens in their houses uh, when they resist uh, looting or when they actually resist uh, these orders that uh, orders of evacuation. Um, they also kidnap, uh, torture, and detain, and sometimes also kill in detention members of resistance committees, uh, Sudanese uh, citizens, and also Sudanese activists. Uh, there are, of course, uh, recorded and documented uh, tens of cases of uh, rape and sexual violence against Sudanese women and girls. Uh, in different areas, whether in Khartoum, but also in the different uh, states of uh, Darfur. Um, uh, of course, uh, this is just the crimes where they don't use, uh, when they don't uh, shell the houses and use heavy artillery or um, any types of, you know, war acts that are not supposed to be taken in densely populated uh, cities like Khartoum or cities in Darfur like Niala, Al-Fashir, Al-Jinina and so on. Uh, on the other hand, of course, the Sudanese armed forces, of course, they are uh, having full-fledged war inside densely populated cities. So this is also by default uh, a violation for the right of life where people are just being shelled in their houses, being shelled in mosques in, uh, in markets and in the streets. But also, of course, the military intelligence repetitively uh, kidnap and detain members of resistance committees and activists. Um, And of course, also some of the forces that are affiliated with the Sudanese armed forces are also looting and raping and and, and causing uh, terror to citizens uh, in the outskirts of uh, of Khartoum city. Uh, So I would say both parties are committing all these uh, unspeakable uh, crimes and they are not shying away uh, from doing this. 
Of course, the Sudanese armed forces decided that they are going to start a mechanism to document all the crimes of RSF uh, to bring them uh, to justice because they are committing uh, crimes against humanity. I wouldn't say that both parties are equal. Of course, I would say RSF is uh, definitely doing worse uh, crimes uh, than the Sudanese armed forces. But yet again, they are both killing Sudanese people and terrorizing them and actually find the time to crack down on resistance committees member and activists while fighting a war, which again brings us back to the point that I mentioned that they are also beside the war, they have a bigger goal, which is basically just, you know, ending the resistance. The resistance committees are... You know, a really inspiring example of civilian mobilization, Um, you know, just in general, your ability to organize themselves to offer an alternative for a a government that has continued to fail them, uh, both in terms of the the current abuses, uh, as well as the sort of logistical gaps left by the sort of lack of good governance under the military regime. So um, from providing alternative political and democratic future, providing humanitarian assistance and basic services over the past few years. Um, And now in the current context, you're clearly under physical threat constantly, and yet they continue to try and operate um, and try and provide um, assistance and, and hope of some sort to the people of Sudan. So I'm wondering if you can tell a little more about the role of resistance committees in the current situation um, as the conflict progresses. I think the impressive aspect to resistance committees, being a member, but also sometimes just taking the time to contemplate away and try to look at this model uh, very closely, is that they always manage to recover faster than the situation allows them to and they always take the initiative even if it's their life on risk so i think they crack down the you know killing the detention uh, the torturing is is nothing is is not new to the resistance committees these are always the i would say the circumstances in which the resistance committees manage to to grow and develop and flourish and also continue to act Um, So what the resistance committees are doing since I would say the first uh, after the first two weeks uh, to to the eruption of this war that they very quickly uh, took all the roles that the government should have taken but never did uh, and that they filled this governance gap where they started to actually rescue people within the neighborhoods provide uh, emergency uh, health services, uh, evacuate the people from uh, very risky areas and neighborhoods to safer places. Uh, Sometimes they even confiscated uh, passports and important papers to the citizens so they can facilitate uh, their departure from from one area to another or departure uh, outside the country. Uh, They have uh, provided and run uh, shelters uh, to the internally displaced uh, people. Uh, they have opened public kitchens where they provided free meals uh, for those who cannot you know, provide for themselves because this is also a large segment of the population are 
dying or at the risk of dying of hunger and they also provided medications and created these very sophisticated channels of communication and coordination between health service providers, uh, donors, and also, I would say, uh, the citizens or the people who actually needed uh, these uh, services the most. It's just, uh, I would say, an enormous effort and uh, and countless amount of services that the resistance committees managed to provide to their local communities uh, during these uh, dire circumstances and being under uh, continuous threat. And I think that this is very important for resistance committees to take this role uh, at this time, not only because this role is expected from them, because since 2019, resistance committees have always successfully managed to serve their communities uh, by providing, you know, important uh, commodities that were running short and by actually regulating, um, you know, the use of commodities like fuel during shortages of fuel and so on. But I think it's important for them to actually uh, practice what they have preached because the resistance committees for the past year, they have been drafting their political vision in, in, in a shape of political charters that in detail spoke about local governance and, 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 and federal uh, governments uh, and how that local communities should be in charge uh, of themselves and in charge of their actually natural resources and because they they exactly they know exactly their uh, their needs their development needs and uh, and their governance needs so now resistance committees were actually able under these uh, circumstances uh, to practice this uh, to basically govern their communities provide services to their people and actually show those who were doubtful uh, that local governance models uh, can actually succeed and flourish in the worst of situations. And I think this actually also sends a very strong message to all the actors in the international community and all the local actors who are always skeptical, not only of the abilities of the resistance committees, but were always skeptical of grassroots governance uh, and, and models of communities self-empowering themselves. Because let's face it, uh, this uh, model of governance was always, you know, criticized or questioned by the political elite who thought that everything, it's it's always uh, an up-bottom approach. It's always uh, a central government telling everyone on the peripheries what to do and so on. So now this is, uh, this um the acts of and efforts of resistance committees sends a very strong message uh, to everyone who was uh, skeptical of this. In that context, do you think that resistance committees can play a role in forging a democratic future for the country, which is currently controlled by the military? I would say absolutely. Uh, resistance committees, through their effort, could be um, a cornerstone, actually, in in uh, emphasizing this uh, model of local governance. I would say that they have already laid out uh, the theoretical part and started practicing a bigger part of the practical part. But I would say in better situations, in more peaceful situations, resistance committees uh, could definitely be part of genuine 
peace uh, agreements and peace processes where stakeholders are the local communities that were uh, impacted by war and conflict. Uh, at the same time, resistance committees could play a key uh, role in elections for, I would say, neighborhoods community, but also local communities that could uh, basically just um, set the way or set uh, pave the way uh, for um, elections on um, for regional council and elections leading up to legislative council, um, which basically is the parliament. Uh, so I think the resistance committees uh, could basically play a key role uh, in, in, in better circumstances. And even if the circumstances are not better, I think we, if this war continued in the pace in which uh, it's go- by which it's going now, and if we actually eventually yet again arrived at some sort of a negotiation between the political uh, elite and between the military leaders, I would say we would find ourselves yet again in, um, in resistance mode because definitely after a war, uh, this is not what the Sudanese people are looking for. And I think the resistance committees will always, you know, if they are there, will always be able to pick up uh, the pieces and continue to resist uh, these models, but also provide a good uh, alternative uh, of empowering local communities and enabling them um, to perform these important governance roles that they were long deprived from in a country like Sudan. And it only makes sense, actually, for local communities to govern themselves in Sudan because the ruler areas in Sudan were always the main provider of wealth to the central government of Sudan because they are the producers, they are the farmers, they are the herders, and actually... um, most of the fortune, or as I said, the wealth of Sudan is provided by the privies. So why not uh, as well uh, rule themselves actually and manage to better distribute uh, their wealth uh, to benefit uh, their development schemes? Absolutely. And since you mentioned, you know, how the actions of resistance committees um, in local communities can be a signal to the military as well as to the international community. Is there anything that you feel the international community could be doing better right now to support resistance committees, grassroots, community-based organizations, and civilians um, in pursuing these goals? I think in the political aspect, the international community knows what they are supposed to do, but they are still somehow failing the Sudanese people by trying to, you know, continue in this model of behind closed door negotiations that are very exclusive and and non-inclusive or of the important uh, stakeholders. So they might as well start to listen to the, you know, hundreds of advices that they were giving of, you know, convening more inclusive uh, peace negotiations and, and, and political processes instead of just having the usual suspects with the military and the political elite. Because I think everyone now tried uh, partnerships between the military and political elite twice or three times and haven't been very successful and it led the country to war. So I, so I think it's about time to change 
uh, this model. But what the international community could really do to the Sudanese uh, population and the Sudanese people nowadays is just try to further enable uh, the resistance committees and Sudanese civilian uh, com- uh, civilian so- uh, civil society to actually be able to engage uh, in a better way in the humanitarian uh, aid work. Uh, the Sudanese activists and the resistance committees and the entire civil society are already doing what they can with the very limited resources available to them. But then when the bigger uh, like donors, whether countries or international organizations or UN agencies, yet uh, hand uh, the different resources and donations uh, to the de facto authority uh, and then expect them actually to do all the work. This is basically just unfair for the Sudanese people because we know for we know for sure that the de facto authority being formed of all of these war warlords and uh, I would say um, NCP members they have no interest in saving the lives of the Sudanese people they have no interest in the well-being of the Sudanese people and therefore simply all these resources and all these funds uh, are being mismanaged uh, and if not being, you know, looted or if not even targeting uh, the Sudanese people. So it would be good if the international community tried to pose some pressure on the de facto authority that it actually includes the Sudanese civil society and the humanitarian aid work and, and, and these processes because this community actually is uh, the the community that has been leading all the processes to save the lives of the Sudanese people. So they might as well also be in control of them of some of the resources because they know better how to use uh, these resources. The international community, but also the wider audience who are watching this war uh, from away, I would say, and not necessarily uh, know the details of the Sudanese politics and its complexity. I just don't want them to be fooled by the fact that this war is just, you know, purely uh, a conflict between two generals who want to rule Sudan. But this war is just a bigger scheme of crackdown on any hopes for democracy in a country in Sudan, uh, in a country as Sudan, and I would just want to call on, I would say, all the civil societies all over the world who are taking interest in the Sudanese cause to continue to support Sudan and to continue to support the Sudanese people, to continue to remember them and to mention them and to mention their right in having a democracy. Because I think when countries uh, slip into wars. Uh, the international community will always have this, you know, louder narrative of this is just another failed uh, African state. They don't necessarily understand democracy and therefore they don't necessarily deserve it. And then we will find ourselves arriving at a scenario where they think that, you know, a military leadership or a military rule or regime will just have more security. And it's important to prioritize security uh, over uh, democracy. And this is what, 
you know, this country or those people deserve for allowing their country to, to slip into war, although that this war was never the fault of the Sudanese people. Also, I think under, I would say, in the light of all uh, the, you know, very intense geopolitical, uh, I would say, interventions in countries like Sudan, but in the region of the Horn of Africa and in Africa in general, uh, it's very easy for for this to become a proxy war where the you know international community actors like the US or the EU uh, would just want to minimize, for example, Russia's uh, uh, Russia's uh, power in Sudan and actually forgetting what the Sudanese people want and need in the narrative. So uh, so actually the last thing that we want to see is that eventually this becomes uh, a full-fledged uh, proxy war for different uh, geopolitical powers where they're just, you know, don't care about the Sudanese people and don't care about the Sudanese land and just decide to use this as a battlefield. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and we'd be grateful if you left us a review. For more information on the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, and populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at number 2 p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.